0: Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dharma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dharma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the... I think it's going to be the last class on the Anapanasati Sutta, um, we're, we're at the point in the Sutta where the Buddha is teaching us how um, it, this whole Sutta is about uh, um, an example of authentic uh, right Dhamma practice. And now we're getting to what that really looks like, what it feels like to us as Dharma practitioners. And notice that these seven factors of awakening aren't something that we develop directly, They're a consequence of right practice, if you will. And um, you've heard me talk about how the Eightfold Path is a limiting path. It's it's the counter to greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, always wanting more, including wanting something more out of Dharma practice than it actually is. Um, and so these seven factors of awakening, you'll see that they fall within that framework of a limited way of living in the world, rather than a greedy way, always wanting more. So the Buddha's words. And how are the four foundations of mindfulness appropriately developed? Again, we can take these four foundations of mindfulness, and even during the Buddha's time, they were inappropriately developed. So the Buddha's saying that if, you, if this is the result, and I'll, I'll read that in just a moment, If the result is such and such, then you know you are practicing the four foundations of mindfulness appropriately. Let me start again. And how are the four foundations of mindfulness appropriately developed? So as to bring the seven factors of awakening to their culmination. It it, it arises from dhamma practice. Whenever a monk remains focused on a body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world, their mindfulness is steady and continuous. That's a key. And so where do we experience that first? You remember the first level of jhana is being mindful of the breath in the body. And we take rapture, joyful engagement in that very seclusion. Whenever a monk, a monk remains focused on the body, free of distraction, when I take that breath, I am mindful of this body. I'm united in this body, but I'm no longer distracted because I'm using my breath. To counter distraction and so how does distraction arise again the four foundations of mindfulness by being distracted by a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling or thinking that the quality of my mind in this moment should be different than it is referring to the fourth foundation of mindfulness but the Buddha teaches us again I'll read it once more whenever a monk remains focused on the body free of distraction Ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. Their mindfulness is steady and continuous. That last, that one little section, putting aside craving and distress, what does that mean? It means in this moment, I am at peace with myself and the world around me. I don't need myself or the world to be any different than it is. Why? Because rooted in wisdom, it can't be. It's what's occurring in this moment. So the only thing I am in charge of or in control of in this moment is the quality of my mind. And that moment feeds the next moment. In other words, if my mind is steady and continuous in this moment as a result of Dhamma practice, that will feed or support the next moment where my mindfulness is steady and continuous. The Buddha continues. When mindfulness is steady and continuous, then mindfulness as a factor of awakening becomes directed. We can do something about it. But first, we have to steady our mind. It's not the other way around. It's not by doing a lot of different things that might steady my mind or or adopt concepts or pray for it uh, or bow for it or visualize for it. It's through the four foundations of mindfulness that we bring our mindfulness to a state of steadiness and and continuousness (laughs) and then mindfulness as a a factor of awakening becomes directed we can start pointing our mind in the right right direction when mindfulness is is steady and continuous it forms the foundation for the culmination of its development so mindfulness refined mindfulness contains the quality of an awakened mind it just means there's a little bit more a little bit more work to do And the Buddha says, remaining mindful in this way, they examine the quality of of this mindfulness with wise discernment, again, framed by the Eightfold Path, they develop understanding of this quality of mindfulness. And so is this understanding something that um, uh, takes years and years to develop or it's, it's a special type of study? No, the Buddha teaches us it's a direct result of authentic and direct jhana practice, or dhamma practice in its entirety. They develop understanding of this quality of mind. We understand steady and continuous. So let me ask all of you, do you not understand a steady and continuous mind? Meaning, having had understanding in this way is the direct experience of the steady and continuous mind. Have you all experienced it? Well, maybe the better question is, have you not experienced at all, at all? No, it's a, it's a natural consequence of authentic Dhamma practice. And again, notice that the Buddha's not putting a time frame on it. He's not saying that your mindfulness is steady and continuous for 18 minutes, 18 years, 18 lifetimes. He's just saying you do it. It's part of our ongoing dhamma practice. And then the Buddha says, when we do it, when one remains mindful in this way, examining and developing understanding of this quality of mindfulness with discernment discernment is 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 established by the eightfold path then mindfulness of certain qualities as a factor of awakening arise the reason why i'm making a, a a a directed point of this it arises naturally is that many schools of buddhism they take different factors and teach them as jhana practice but there's no underlying eightfold path or jhana meditation to develop it. So these are factors that arise as a consequence of authentic and direct jhana practice dhamma practice. This is how right mindfulness is established as a factory as a factor or a quality of awakening. When one examines and comes to a comprehension of mindfulness as a factor of awakening, we understand what we're doing. We un- we understand the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path of refined mindfulness, then, with wise discernment, investigation of the Dhamma now arises. So we first have to establish that level of jhana, giving to refined mindfulness, now framed by the Eightfold Path, and now we're ready for Dhamma practice. When investigation of the Dhamma arises, and one who who examines, and comes to a comprehension of that quality, With discernment, then investigation of the Dhamma arising as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. So this is such an important line. If you seem um without direction today in your Dhamma practices, you know, we just talked about how how Dhamma practice changes, it's also impermanent. If that's not present, if clear direction isn't present, what what's missing? missing is the direct and uh, experience of jhana, a mind united in its body and developing the framework of the eightfold path and all that that means is come back take a breath continue with your Dhamma practice and take a look at this framework of the eightfold path because again the framework of the eightfold path is the limiting framework and for a mind that doesn't want to be limited the eightfold path becomes a struggle for a mind that understands the 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 value, the liberation of limitations, then the then jhana practice and dhamma practice is invigorated. Our our experience and the, our underlying focus is aroused now. I want more of this. This is this is also, also a word for it, chanda, which is skillful desire. My desire is focused in a way that's going to bring me true benefit investigation of the Dhamma arising as a factor of awakening becomes around. This is how investigation of the Dhamma is established as a factor or a quality of awakening. When one who examines and comes to comprehension of investigation of the Dhamma arising as a factor of awakening with wise discernment, persevering effort arises. So again, you've heard me say this in many different ways. This is why direct experience with the Dhamma is so important in the beginning So that we recognize benefit it's one of the reasons why we have these discussions after a talk so that we can talk about and recognize yeah the dhamma is working for me and once we recognize it in ourselves and understand the benefit of it you don't need anything else to direct your, your your practice save your own joyful engagement your own rapture your own enthusiasm for awakening and when that wanes what do we do we turn back to the dhamma to reinvigorate us because the buddha says if you do that it'll happen when persevering effort arises in one who examines analyzes and comes to a comprehension of that quality again with discernment with wisdom then persevering effort arising as a factor of awakening becomes around it's present persevering effort um we have one of our teachers I, I, i'll mention his name because he talks about this often ram He's such a good example of right effort because once he started establishing the Dhamma, and it took him a couple years, once he understood what he was doing, I don't think he's missed one, more than one class in the last eight years because his own determination was aroused. And that has led him to a great understanding of the Dhamma and has brought him great benefit. But he kept coming until... You could almost say that his Dhamma practice then became self-directed or at least it was self-inspired he didn't need the uh he didn't need the call of tuesday night practice or saturday morning practice to get him focused he was doing it in effect 24 7. this is how persevering effort is established as a factor or a quality of awakening when one whose persevering effort arises joyful engagement with the dharma arises when joyful engagement with the dharma arises and one whose persistence is aroused then joyful engagement with the Dhamma as a factor for awakening becomes a route. So are you joyfully engaged with your Dhamma practice? Or are you engaging with it through grim determination? Um, At some point, and again, that grim determination is okay if it keeps you going, but at some point, if you're going to develop the Dhamma, you have to get past grim determination on doing it just to get better, or just because that bald guy in Pennsylvania says I should, or any other reason. Because of your affiliation with others that you like, at some point, it becomes self-directed because of your own joyful engagement. Because you realize the pure joy of developing this understanding. This is how joyful engagement with the Dharma is established as a factor of awakening. When one is joyfully engaged with the Dhamma, the body grows calm and the mind grows calm. When we're joyfully engaged. Why is the Buddha saying that? So again, from 2,600 years ago. Because up until that point, if I'm not joyfully engaged in the Dhamma, I'm doing it for a reason other than just that, the joy of awakening. I'm doing it because I think I should. I think I need to. I think I got to get saved. I think I can't stand the quality of my mind. Whatever it is. At some point, our Dhamma practice shifts. and Maybe we can talk about this in our discussion. And we do it because we want to do it because we recognize the benefit when that happens when one is fully engaged with the and again the buddha is talking about a process developing in each of us and for every one of us it's different but when that happens when one is fully engaged with the dharma then tranquility as a factor of awakening arises tranquility calm this is the beginning of the establishment of that fourth foundation of mindfulness This is how tranquility is established as a factor or a quality of awakening. When one who is tranquil, the mind and body calm, the mind develops concentration. I I left out the word profound concentration because I couldn't fit it in the translation, but, but it does fit here. When one who is tranquil, the mind and body calm, the mind develops profound concentration. This is a developing process, isn't it? framed by the Eightfold Path, and now focused on these seven factors of awakening, we can recognize it's occurring within us. When the mind of one who is tranquil and well-concentrated, then concentration as a factor of awakening arises. It's interesting where the Buddha puts this in the Sutta, because he begins the Sutta by teaching us, this is the benefit of concentration. We've had four classes describing the benefits of jhana meditation, and now the Buddha is bringing it up again on the tail end of the seven factors of awakening. So, what are we learning here? Concentration, jhana, frames the entire Eightfold Path. Without right meditation, we can't hope but develop immediate concentration and then profound concentration through integrating the entire Eightfold Path. And again, think about this teaching from 2,600 years ago. The Buddha is giving this to to the original sangha, holding up monks who had developed just this as an example and then saying, this is
1: exactly how you do it.
0: And these words are just as relevant today as they were 2,600 years ago, aren't they? They provide just as much direction. And I would say um, the arousal of enthusiasm with me, and it should be in you, because we recognize how to do it and what we can develop from it. This is how concentration is established as a factor or a quality of awakening. When one whose concentration is established, equanimity arises, a calm and balanced quality of mind. When equanimity arises, then equanimity as a factor of awakening arises. So remember how when we first looked at the four foundations of mindfulness and that fourth foundation is the establishment of equanimity. Now, the Buddha is teaching us the culmination of that is the establishment of that fourth foundation of mindfulness in a steady and continuous way. And this is how equanimity is established as a factor of awakening. This is how we develop it. Now, again, think about our previous four classes. There's nothing left to chance, there's nothing left to, 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 there's nothing ambiguous about anything here, is there? It's a declarative statement. This is how equanimity is established as a factor or a quality of awakening through this eightfold path. And again, the Buddha never taught anything else. You didn't, you know, there's nothing else out there that a Buddha taught. There's a lot out there that's called Buddhism, but it has nothing to do with this. Um, let me continue. I was gonna say Thursday, uh, Tuesday, David gave a talk on the Simsapa Sutra that I'm gonna give in a couple of weeks to culminate this. But it's such an important sutta on on the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path and how important it is to keep focused on this. Furthermore, the Buddha continues, one remains mindful of the quality of the mind in reference to the Four Noble Truths. The quality of mind in reference to the Four Noble Truths. Is my mind now framed by these Four Noble Truths? Am I seeing the world through this understanding of these Four Truths? Remaining mindful of knowing that, again, the Four Noble Truths, we remain mindful of knowing this is stress, meaning we understand at a profound level, greed, aversion, and diluted thinking that contributes to stress in myself and in all humanity. Again, look, I ask you to look out on the world today. It's obviously manifest. Then we understand that we understand the origination of stress, craving that originates and clinging that maintains dukkha, rooted in greed, aversion, and diluted thinking thinking that I'm something other than what I am, or the world needs to be something other than what it is. And then understanding this is the cessation of stress, having the direct experience of our own contributions to stress. And then understanding that it is the eightfold path that leads to the cessation of stress, meaning applying this eightfold path. If we're wise, our practitioners, that will be the limiting factor for our lives. Uh, we were also talking Tuesday about how for many of us, our lives simply become naturally simple. We stop cutting out a lot of the dross that, that is just a distraction. It's just there to keep us busy and keep us distracted as a natural consequence of practicing the eightfold path. In this way, one remains mindful of the, of the quality of mind free of distraction and in, internally and externally, internally and externally. I'm calm within my body, and I'm no longer grasping at anything outside to to provide resolution or a calm and peaceful mind. It's established within me through my own understanding. It's not dependent on any impermanent quality external to myself, including whatever may be going on in the world, whether it's a time of peace or a time of war, it doesn't matter. This quality of mind is established in jhana. It's establishing equanimity. It has nothing to do with conditions of the world. One remains mindful of the phenomena of the origination of the qualities of mind and their arising and passing away. We understand the ever-changing nature of mind. There is the knowledge of the maintenance of of, of the qualities of mind and their recollection, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Why is the Buddha saying that? Independent of. Meaning it's not based on any external doctrine, or any external belief, or any ex- external need for salvation. Independent of anything, independent of, and not clean. <laughs> Bodey! Bodey, come
2: here!
0: Come here, Bode. Come here, stop it! Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here! You gotta stop! Sorry about that. You gonna stop? Okay independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. When I say that the the self is then just a reference point to what's occurring, this is what I mean. This is what I'm referring to. I am independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Nothing that occurs in the world, the quality of my mind is not dependent on anything that's occurring in the world. It's a pretty profound thing to be able to say, but it's what Dhamma practice is all about. But how do we get there so again the sutra is such a good example of how we get there we start looking at we use this framework of the eightfold path to recognize and abandon those things in our life that are continuing to distract us away from this quality of mind and as we bring the framework of the eightfold path into all of our lives not just some of it not just our so-called spiritual life but all of it then we'll be able to recognize those things that are taking us out of Dhamma practice. But, and that's where the seven factors of awakening come in, we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to look at all the distracting influences in our lives. And then asking ourselves, do we want this? Is this me? Is this mine? Is this what I am? And just an example that I can use from my own experience, but i use a term that I know is more popular across the pond. Do I need to go to the pub tonight? Is that more important to me? and hanging out with my friends than my jhana practice or maybe going to a jhana class or something like that. In the past, my answer was always yes, the pub is always more important. But as I started developing the jhana, I realized that, no, I wanna do this. This is what's bringing the quality of mind, And I'm just using that as an example, but we do this with everything. It might be that I need to watch the the news tonight or a baseball game or, or a soccer game or something else or my favorite poet. Now is the time to practice jhana, to practice dharma, Because I understand the benefits of it. And this, whatever this might be in my life, no longer serves that. It might be a fun distraction. It might be something that I've been doing my whole life. But the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path allow us to see what is dros and what is actual Dhamma practice, what is most important to do. The Buddha says, this is how one remains mindful of the seven factors of awakening in and of themselves that's always a reference to free of distraction we're seeing this in and of themselves without any embellishment without me me saying yeah the seven factors of awakening and my qigong practice on saturday mornings no qigong is good but it's not a factor of awakening or chanting might be good i don't think it is but it's not a factor of awakening or any other belief that i might have that is part of my salvation it's not a factor of awakening it's important to recognize those things that are only distracting us from our Dhamma practice and simply abandoning them. Uh, skipping over a lot of comments. And then the Buddha says, this is how he did it. I came to direct knowledge of fabrications. Remember, from, from ignorance of four noble truths, from fabrications, from fabrications comes a whole mass of suffering in the Buddha's word. I came to direct knowledge of fabrications direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications, ignorance of four noble truths. The Buddha said, I came to direct knowledge of the cessation of fabrications, and I came to direct knowledge of the eightfold path leading to the cessation of fabrications. We say, I did this. I'm a human being. Again, remember, the Buddha never never held himself out as anything special or with, with powers that other human beings don't have. He said, I am a human being. I came to this understanding. You can too. Now, if anyone develops these four foundations of mindfulness in this manner, and listen to the the promise in this from 2,600 years ago, I'm going to start it again. Now, if anyone, notice there's no qualification. If anyone develops these four foundations of mindfulness in this manner, as he taught it, for seven years, just seven years, one could expect either complete understanding here and now, or if there's any clinging and maintaining remaining in this present lifetime. Meaning with continued Dharma practice, awakening is meant to occur in this lifetime. This was a completely radical idea during the Buddhist time and during our modern Buddhist practice. I studied in most of the major modern Buddhist schools and not one of them ever, ever taught awakening in this lifetime. They all thought it was an impossible task that would take eons and eons, but go ahead and do it anyway. And I always thought this is nuts, why am I doing it? But I kept doing it because everyone else was doing it. Until I got sick of it. And it really was this one thought that I for human being awakened, he had to teach how other people could do it in this lifetime because he did it. And that's what started me turning away from what I again just in this context the nonsense of modern Buddhism, because none of it teaches awakening in this present life, let alone seven years. If anyone perfectly develops these four foundations of mindfulness in this manner as taught for six, or five or four or three or two or one year for six months, or three months, for only one month or for two weeks for seven days. One could expect either complete understanding here and now, or if there's any clinging and maintaining remaining, in this present life, take to the Dhamma and awaken in this present life. It's meant to do it now. If it's not happening now, it's because you need a little bit more practice. Friends, again, listen to these words from 2,600 years ago. This is the direct path for the purification of all beings, for the cessation of sorrow and regret, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for establishing the right method of practice and for complete unbinding. Uh, in other words, these four foundations of mindfulness. Now, I'm going to go back. As I read this again, ask yourself if anything that is distracting you from your dharma practice is because of any of this, because we're grasping after anything other than a direct path to the purification of all beings. Are we looking for the cessation of sorrow and regret in our life? Well, if you're feeling regret about something you've done or something that's occurring in your life, you now know it's because of a lack of integration, complete integration of the Eightfold Path, because the Eightfold Path promises, promises us to be free of self-inflicted sorrow and regret. And just a clarification, when I watch the news, and I don't do it often, and I see women and children getting bombed, it brings sorrow to me. But that's appropriate sorrow. It's not the sorrow that, that's rooted in hatred. It's just the sorrow that's rooted in a common understanding of human suffering. And even the people that are inflicting the suffering, I feel sorrow for. For the cessation of self-inflicted sorrow and regret. For the disappearance of pain and distress. For the establishing the right method. All my life, I was looking for the right method until I came across the right method and then established it. For complete unbinding, in other words, these four, and I'll add the word, These four simple foundations of mindfulness. Being mindful of the breath in the body, arising and passing away, being mindful of feelings and thoughts, arising and passing away, being mindful of thoughts arising and passing away, and being mindful of the present quality of mind, arising and passing away. When one is mindful of the arising and passing away of all internal and external phenomena, all, right, all internal and external phenomena within me and without me their mind and body united how do we do it we take a breath mindful breath and we exhale We're mindful of our inhale or exhale their mind and body united their quality of mind establishing concentration and equanimity the development of four foundations of mindfulness brings the seven factors of awakening to culmination again these seven factors of awakening aren't something we grasp after, but they're to be recognized. Because if we, as we recognize them, we understand we're on the right path. We're, we are within the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path. This is how the four foundations of mindfulness are appropriately developed, so as to bring the seven factors of awakening to their useful combination. So this last section is called Clear Knowing and Release. And how are the seven factors in this check section? And how are the seven factors of awakening appropriately developed so as to bring right understanding or right view and release from clinging to wrong views to the culmination? When one develops mindfulness in this manner, as the Buddha teaches, again, the Buddha's teaching this because he still had those in front of him, of Buddhas in the world, who were still grasping after all the other practices that were floating around of all the things that their friends and acquaintances were doing. So he's saying if you develop mindfulness in this manner, the way taught, as a factor of awakening, mindfulness established in seclusion. Established on this uh, uh, mindfulness established on seclusion, established on dispassion, the cessation of eye making, established on cessation, established in relinquishment of clinging to ignorant views. They develop investigation of the Dhamma as a factor for awakening. They develop investigation of the Dhamma as a factor of awakening. They develop persistence as a factor for awakening. They develop joyful engagement as a factor for awakening. They develop tranquility as a factor of awakening. All these things that we grasp after in other practices, they're a natural development of authentic and direct jhana practice. They develop concentration as a factor for awakening. They develop equanimity as a factor for awakening. These seven factors of awakening are dependent on seclusion. They're dependent on dispassion. They're dependent on cessation. These seven factors of awakening, when fully developed, result in relinquishment of all views, ignorant of four noble truths. And we all know those four truths. This is how the seven factors of awakening are appropriately developed so as to bring right understanding, meaning right view, and release from clinging to ignorant views to their culmination. This is what the Buddha said. Gratified, the monks were delighted in the Buddhist words. That's the end of the Anapanasati Sutta. Hope you found it enlightening and enriching. Enriching, but we'll find out right now. Dominic, how are you today?
3: Hey, John. Uh, <laughs> uh, a question. If I'm, if I Please. may. Yes. Uh, you said about uh, regret, uh, and so. If i understand correctly uh, if i practice the dhamma and develop the right view of the eightfold path then i shouldn't have regrets or so if i do something bad now should i regret it or not
0: uh, it's such an important question we're talking we're, we're talking about something that's very broad but also very specific so in the moment if i find myself regretting something framed by the eightfold path i understand that I've done something that is counter to the Eightfold Path, or I wouldn't be feeling regret. Because my mind is well grounded, I can learn from it and hopefully eliminate that behavior. Now, there's a broader aspect of of regret. Um, And it it could go back to maybe something from your childhood. Uh, We've all done things that we're not happy with, and some things might have been worse than others. And so we might fall back into a, a type of regret that is punishing us now. I was such an awful person uh, that is to be recognized as something that is no longer present and i am attending to the qualities of my mind so i no longer will act that way in the future and now i am gaining gaining some self-assurance and i think i might have talked about this yeah i think it might have been a different uh, uh, tuesday or saturday class one of the benefits the empowering benefits of the eightfold path is once integrated I know that I can no longer be harmful to other beings or myself, because I know that my behavior is well controlled Now, Unless you experience that, you cannot understand how powerful that is. And I, I gotta I have to explain, it's such an important question. I'm glad you, you brought it up. But I need to explain it a little deeper. One of the things that I've noticed, um, and you've heard me say that the common human problem is self-loathing. And I, and I really believe and I think you might all believe that too. It's a, it's a strong word, but it means that I think I'm not good enough or I'm lacking in something. And so the first time, and this usually happens when we're very, very young, we do something to someone that we love that hurts them. It might have been just screaming at our mom out of frustration or something. We don't have a framework to understand it. And we start blaming ourselves. And we, be, we tend to become super sensitive to, to our actions hurting people when we don't even understand why we did it and that creates a type of conditioned mind that instills fear and and apprehension in all of us we can't help it until we come to understand this profound nature of regret why the buddha taught it because it's like a yoke around our necks unless we understand what it means and so the only thing we can do with, with past regret is the same thing we can do when we recognize present regret where is it coming from It's always coming from wrong speech, wrong action, or wrong livelihood, or a combination of the three. So in this present moment, I recognize I've done something that I'm regretful about. I now have the presence of mind to recognize it, understand where it came from, not judge myself harshly, not need to go to 20 years of therapy about it, or go, if that's what you need, do it. But I understand it, and I do what the Buddha said here. I abandon it. And I'm using the framework of jhana meditation, a well-concentrated mind, and the framework of the Eightfold Path to recognize, yes, this was behavior that is inappropriate but not, not worth burning in hell for, you know, the, the, the Christian belief that I did something wrong and I have to pay for it that way. No, change my behavior by changing the way that I think about myself in relation to the world. And so then I remain harmless to myself and others. So,
3: does that answer your question? It's a profound question,
0: Don. <laughs> uh, well, yes and no. So, where's the no
3: part? So, so, okay, let's, I don't know, let's take an example. So, I did, I do something wrong and I recognize it's wrong. So, okay, so you're saying I shouldn't punish myself because I recognize that now and I know why I did it and I shouldn't suffer for it. But should I make uh, amends for it? Yes, should I absolutely. correct the behavior? Yes. yes. Okay. The, That's...
0: Um, the, uh, I think all you all know that I, I recovered from alcoholism and drug abuse, and I did it through AA and specifically the 12 steps, which are actually remarkable when they're taken the way they originally intended. One aspect of that is something called step nine, where you make direct amends. Because so when you think about a drug addict and a drunk like I was, you hurt a lot of people. Doing that was one of the most important and freeing things I ever did. And it took me about four years to work through it all, really. Most of it was immediate to friends and family. Those are easy ones. But when you do that, in, in the framework of, of Donald practice, you're, you're both acknowledging the wrong you did and you're balancing... Uh, you're instilling practical equanimity into the situation. In other words, just as an example, maybe I stole a pack of gum from the store down the street. It's not a big deal. But my dollar practice tells me to go back in, look the owner of the store in the eye, say, this is what I did. I'm very sorry. And, and you do that with the intent that I'm never going to do this again. And that's one of the things I learned through taking a proper nine step. We recognize that we've done something that is hurtful to ourselves or to another human being. And, we, and if, it, if it is an actual harm to another human being, we should make restitution. We shouldn't hide from it in any way. The same is true for ourselves. And so I'm still in a position where I, I counsel a lot of people in the beginning of, of recovery. And this always comes up. And one of the most important um, aspects of this restitution, if you will, is, a, is for yourself. And so I teach everybody when they take them through the twelve through the step, do something good for yourself as an act of making restitution for yourself. But we should all do that because we've all done things that, we, that hurt ourselves. Even if it was through hurting another person, we hurt ourselves. And we should look at our jhana practice, our dhamma practice, as a way of making amends to ourselves, but also to everyone. So again, I teach people in recovery, The best way you can make amends, especially for the ones that love you, is to stay clean and sober. The best way we can make amends to the world, but most importantly to ourselves, is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. That's why you hear me say often, the most loving thing I can do for myself and for all sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Because in that way, I know that I'm no longer gonna harm myself or harm others. Again, that's the picture of the Buddha. That's really what he's saying. You see that most of the time you see the Buddha sitting with his hand up like that and his finger touching the ground. A very peaceful pose. What he's pictured, what he's exampling is profound harmlessness to himself and others. The pointing, touching the ground with his right hand is saying, I have overcome the world. Meaning he's overcome the greed, aversion, and deluded thinking that would cause us to harm others or ourselves and fall into regret. So it's such an important question, and it's where a lot of our um, ignorance is resolved in regret, because we all have it, you know? And it could even be as a, a simple as, uh, I, didn't, I forgot to meditate yesterday, what a bad person I am. That's regret, isn't it? And it's eye-making. So being willing to look at regret, we can learn a lot about eye-making, but it should always be a common peaceful response. So great question. And did that? uh, uh, Do you have any other questions about that, Colin?
3: For some other time, but for now, thank you. (laughs) It's much clearer.
0: Anytime you want, just let me know. And uh, this all revolves revolves around being gentle with ourselves, always. You know, because we're always going to find things that we that we find regretful, we wish were different, especially when we start looking at our past. Um, But it, it. What good ever comes out of that? Nothing. We're we're kind of taught, this is more of a Western idea, but I'm not just talking about the United States, but um, that the best way to improve ourselves is find out where we've done wrong, beat ourselves up over it, and then we'll get better. It never works. It just makes people more and more um, just to use a it makes people more and more psychotic, doesn't it? Because no uh, varying levels of psych psychosis, but (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) it's always a slightly insane thought to beat myself up isn't it it doesn't mean that we should that i should recognize behavior that is hurtful but it's never any of any value to beat myself up if i hope to change it it just doesn't work and again look at the look at the 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 systems we put in the world that encourages that and where we are you know we're still we still think that we should the idea that I can beat myself up and make myself better is the same idea that I can beat up another country and make that country better. It's still rooted in that same ignorance. I'm, I'm manifesting that and blowing it way out of the original proportion, but it's the same thought, isn't it? You know, I'm gonna beat myself up to make me good. I'm gonna beat you up to make you good. If I can do it to myself, I do it to you. And that, We've been living like that for, you know, for millions of years. It doesn't help. Self-loathing is a common human disease. If we have it in our Dhamma practice, recognize it and get rid of it. Abandon it. And again, don't, don't analyze it, because that's no way of getting rid of it. Just recognize it's there, because we all have it. Thank you,
2: Dominic. Hello, Jeff. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Um, that, that was a great uh, question, Dom. I, I was kind of centering on that myself. In terms of that self-loathing, John, correct me or help me articulate this, I, I, I've begun to see it as an excuse for not accepting or not wishing to relinquish the emotions attached to it. In, yes, other, yes. in other words, you're clinging to the emotions as a form of eye-making or clinging to Anata. yes. Yeah.
0: And it seems like annihilation if we let that go. It seems like we need those views yeah. to be safe. What really is this? That that feeling of safety comes from thinking that I need to keep these fabrications going to live in the world. Because we all know, I think everybody has a reasonable BS detector. We all know we're playing a game with ourselves, but but we bury it so deeply that, and again, it just creates more stress and more frustration because it's not that that. I know I'm, I'm projecting an inauthentic self out into the world. That's tough enough, but I realize I'm doing it to myself. That, that sucks. And we can't face it unless we have something like this, a gentle practice to recognize there's no substance to that, to the fabrication. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where, that's how it manifests.
2: Yeah. And, and I'm also, I'm trying to connect the idea of seclusion to Ah. that. Uh, because in my mind uh, when I deal with those kinds of issues or when I begin to recognize that in myself, a lot of that my hesitation or excuse I have is that it is, um, I have no way to control the emotions of other people. Yeah. In other yeah. words, um, my actions, if I, if I, uh, raise that subject again or approach the subject or begin to change myself, then I have no control over their emotions and they're going to be affected negatively or however they're going to be affected. Yeah. It is like a barrier to uh, my own personal seclusion, as it were.
0: Yeah. So- we don't learn to control other people's emotions. We learn to understand them, and so leave them in peace with their, with their with their emotions. And to those closest with us, that, that can be pretty tricky because in a, in a one-on-one relationship, the other person can feel like we're pulling away from them by simply establishing, I went through this in my marriage, by the way. Um, <coughs> and so we have to be sensitive to the fact of our appearance to others, but we can't let that stop our Dhamma practice because the most loving thing I can do for that other person that I'm concerned about is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. And because other people might become agitated by our seclusion, and I'll explain that a little bit, what that means uh, in just a moment. Other people are, are affected by our seclusion. It's because of their own grasping and clinging nature. But again we understand that we shouldn't dismiss and say well you're just you're just like that because you're 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 clinging that's the that's uh, it that's not an understanding approach so we can we can try to explain to others what we're doing as best as we can and let people know that i am still present with you but over time let them know that you're no longer going to lose your mind in the same in similar situations where you might have in the past seclusion does not mean isolation it means that we are disentangled from the world we've established seclusion on our cushion and we now take that seclusion framed by the eightfold path off our cushion so that we do not get disentangled with others but again for people that we that we are most entangled with that can feel like we're we're dismissing mm-hmm.
2: them yeah like withdrawal
0: yeah it takes a, it takes a deaf touch and i would say an awful lot of practice but there's, there's also an awful lot of understanding that we develop that way. You know, we, we, part of Dharma practice is learning to meet people where they are. We talk a lot about this on retreat. because that, It's a good place to bring this idea up. But in the world, we still have to meet people where they are, which means we understand it. Uh, one of the things that we should never do is feed other people's fabrication stuff. And we do that through the Dharma, through, through, through wise restraint, through seclusion, because that is a very cruel thing. So you, again, it's, it's a very fine line, but it's always, it's always skillful to present calm and peace to other people, no matter how what they're expressing, even if they're insisting that we join them in uh, a lack of lack of peace, lack, a lack, less than peaceful mindset. You know, and that happens a lot, you know. It, it, people like uh, people like other people who agree with them, especially those that are closest to them I mentioned mentioned my marriage um, (coughs) getting into meditation practice I got married at the 30 um, and I was kind of bouncing around and going to this different practice and that practice and my wife future ex-wife had no interest at all in meditation but she was so, so threatened by the fact that I was doing something that didn't include her that she I, she insisted that I go with her, and she was always miserable after whatever class it might have been because she didn't want to be there. But she she you know for seven years she insisted that she do that, and I didn't have the wherewithal to let her feel comfortable that I'm doing something that doesn't include you, but I'm still committed to you. I just didn't understand it. I just I resented the fact that she I was dragging her around at the time. I didn't handle it well, but I I can certainly speak to it now. You know? Uh, and I actually did address it. A, a, I had a talk with her about ten years after we split, just to get into some of these things to make to make amends to her uh, in that way. It, it's an, and that, again, it's an important question about how do we apply the Dharma while we're living in the world. These are this is it, you know, isn't it? This is, it's important to be able to do this, uh, and it shows a, a great understanding, Jeff, that you that you are asking the question because you're coming up against it, aren't you?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And it's it's not such a huge conflict for me, uh, but but it is an issue. Uh, I mean, it. it uh, I, I I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm detached from the from the effects that that has, but I have. am uh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, uh, trying to learn how to uh, channel my compassion into some kind of constructive uh, benefit. Yeah, sometimes it helps me when I'm, when I'm in a
0: really um, aggregate, and I even get phone calls from people that, that don't like what I'm teaching and they want to yell at me for a little while. And I always look at that like in my mind, this is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is, this, you know, I, I reflect the four noble truths into that moment. And that that allows me to stay well focused. And respond in a way that I think is useful but it's not always well taken I, I, I get you know I get two or three hang-ups a month from people that, that want me to be different but it, if I was falling into the into the mindset that I need to make this person happy I would start teaching them something else than this you know but I know that that's cool so I, I, I let them I present a common peaceful presence while they're screaming at me not maybe just calling me names um, let them vent and say, you know, this is what I teach. Um, and if you do this, you can develop a common, peaceful mind. Sometimes I get, wow, that sounds great. Sometimes I get, well, F you, and hang up the phone. But in, the, in in both situations, my mind, the quality of my mind stays the same. And that, in the past, I was I was born a people pleaser, people pleaser. And that was one of my worst characteristics my whole life. I wanted everybody to be happy. And, you know, that, that's an awful way to live because you can you can't make, I couldn't make myself happy. And I was out there trying to make everybody else happy. Sucks. Um, let me get to get to Alex. Alex, how are you?
3: Hi, John. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. you were talking about there. Um, I have to say sometimes, and it's not only you, but when people, I don't know if it's dismissive, but when people kind of throw this comments or out there about therapy like 20 years of therapy it it does get my back up a bit I'll just I'll be honest because um I've done I'm on my way to I've done 10 years I think I'm probably on my way to 20 um but I totally hear just that point you added there that you're not here to please people you're here to teach what you believe the Buddha taught and I've got to be aware of what what I'm clinging to and Anyway, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just something I needed to raise, I think, because uh, it does, it I'm, I'm triggers really... me, it triggers me. I, I feel, I find it, I don't know if it's my perception of what you're saying, but I find it a bit dismissive of another practice that can help people, really help people in, with their paths, you know, and it's helped yeah. me a lot. It's helped me, if anything, you know, it's with this path that I'm on, and it might be my conditioning. I find it very difficult to understand and and integrate it into my life. But when when I was in therapy, I found that difficult too. But I transformed. I did. I transformed in a, in a way that made, improved my life. So
0: yeah.
3: it, maybe that's something that holds me back on this path. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad you brought it up. And I, I usually uh, offer more qualification for that than just that blanket statement because I and I, I think you might have heard me say it other times, I, I, therapy brings a lot of benefit to an awful lot of people. And the only thing I'm saying is that that's not this. That That's all. And that the yeah. culmination is, is often different. In other words, it, um, uh, therapy is about, um, it's, it's much more of a personal, or personalization of, What's occurring in your world? Again, I don't—I don't mean that to dismiss it. That is very helpful for many, many people, and I don't dismiss that. And this is something different. It, it's completely different. Um, and maybe the reason why I say it, and you're—you're and you're probably helping me say it in a better way. It deals with different issues. And this is this practice is just what it is. It's a liberation from ignorance of four noble truths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therapy is something else. And it just is again if you went to your ther- therapist and said if i keep coming here when can i expect to have understanding of four noble truths they're going to tell you the same thing that's not what this is about and, th- and that's all that i'm saying it's just two different things but you're right to bring it up in that way i, I the way i said it was dismissing it, dismissing it mm, okay. I don't mean to be. well it yeah. was you're, you know you're, you're right to question me on it i i appreciate you didn't i would rather you say what you just did
1: yeah.
0: Then, 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 then be wondering what the hell does you mean, or be or be mad at me for saying, or whatever. So,
3: yeah, it's, it's entirely appropriate. No, I've I've often in previous when I was in the Triratna stuff, I often would question that question, bring it up as well, and have lots of discussions about it. Um, it's an interesting one for me. It is what something that maybe holds me back on this path, or or tries to help me. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm always trying to work out if the two can fit together and if not, what does that mean for my my practice? But anyway, I don't want to get into that now. This is my, that's my personal stuff. What came well, up what for me? For, Alex. Sorry?
0: That, that's what this is for, is your personal
3: stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know, maybe not right now. Um,
0: well, let, I let think me just th- say too, that don't, don't, you don't need to find a way to combine the two. You're better off not. Let your, yeah. let your therapy be therapy, and yeah. you said yourself, well, you, okay, you find so great benefits from it, but it, and let your Dharma like, practice be your Dharma practice,
3: because I'm not, I'm they know this, not, yeah, not mentioned. I'm, I'm trying to understand, because earlier you said about um, Q, qigong, you said qigong is great, um, but don't, it's not this, yeah. so abandon it. And this is where I'm struggling, like,
0: what well, do you well, mean? Better, well, I'm, I didn't hear that you said sort of something.
3: So you said so you said to abandon it, Qigong?
0: Oh, no, no, I didn't say I didn't say abandon Qigong. If I did, I I misspoke. I just said that it's different. I I encourage people to take Qigong. I think it's I think it's a much more compatible practice than say yoga. And I don't tell people don't go to yoga. But if you're going to do a body based practice, I say Qigong is is uh, I just think it's a better practice. It's safer too. You don't hear of a lot of injuries. But what I was saying was that qigong, even though I think qigong is a good practice, it's not dharma practice. That's
3: all. So so how? So, but for me to be on the dharma, on the path, on the you know, to follow the dharma, I still need other things. I guess I feel like I need other things in my life. Like it could be qigong, it could be anything to help me get through those moments of the day and then come to class and engage. So this, so maybe it is part of, maybe it's part of my Dharma practice. Is that fair? I, 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 oh,
0: it's absolutely fair. You're, you're, the, the Dharma...
3: Uh, I just feel like, to, to, I, 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 I might be confused, but my understanding is that the, the, the option is to, I'm trying to work out what to do with the things that aren't Dharma practice. Do I them and accept
0: them for what they are. I, I think you should examine them within the framework of the eightfold path. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it skillful? Is it bringing you benefit, or is it is it just distraction? And uh, just using qigong or yoga as an example, they can both be useful practices, and they can be distraction. What am What am I using it for? But that takes
1: okay. it,
3: it takes
0: a well concentrated mind to understand that.
3: Okay. okay.
0: Uh, so nothing is. Nothing is off the table. Um, if you were saying that, uh, you know, for, for fun on Saturday night, you go and you uh, just just think of something that would be awful to do, like right? I don't know, you behead chickens or something. Mm. I would I would tell you if if you're finding benefit in that, go ahead and do it. But you really might want to look at that closely. Mm. Mm. Going to therapy or going to yoga or qigong, I would say go ahead and enjoy it as long as it's bringing you pleasure and it's not a distraction from your dhamma practice
3: okay okay yeah yeah
2: and Um, so you
0: know i'm gonna i'm gonna maybe teach the some sakha next week because i think it's a good point for for our practice i might wait till the end we only got a couple classes but when i talk about the eightfold path be a limit being a limiting path it is just that way is it when we start developing the eightfold path we tend to to let the things that are no longer serving the path drop away but they're usually, um, I would say, not usually. It's always done uh, with gentleness. In other okay. words, if, if I decide, oh, John said that yoga practice is no good. I can't go there anymore. And so you don't go, and you feel like you should go. That's not Dharma practice. That's just that. Then you're distracted by not going. Yeah. So find the things in your life that are that you feel are suiting you well. I would even say this I hope it's not this way. If you find that Dhamma practice isn't suiting you well, you shouldn't be practicing the dharma. Yeah, yeah, again, it's just that way. But, but in order for you to know that, you have to be fully engaged with it, and it has to be uh, seen as for what it is it's something other than everything else that you're doing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that makes sense. Um, I have a burning question that I wanted to get in before my time's up, <laughs> but, um so the main question I had was, what I noticed when I was listening, there's a lot of notes that I, ma- I made, but I think the concept of awakening um, throws me off. The, the, so if if we were teaching this without this idea, what, cause sometimes you say, take to the Dharma and become awakened. If there wasn't this become awakened part of it, I think I'd find it a lot easier to follow. Because for me, I, I'm I'm always thinking about this thing that I've never experienced and you know in your case because you you say that you've done all these traditions and none none of them uh taught that you can awaken now Uh um that's where i get really confused with this path because i never witnessed anyone to awaken as far as i know um so i just feel like the concept makes me almost causes me to cling to something um that I will, that I will never understand, and I, I just, I just, just, just dawned on me that if I didn't, if the, the awakening concept was never mentioned, and this was just the path to feel to do good and or um, live a better life, <laughs> uh, in some ways, without this, it feels like a goal that we're, that it's almost like teasing us <laughs> to cling to something, it's, yeah. and it's confusing. I find it very confusing the, the, the concept of awakening.
0: It, it, yeah that's right because it's conceptual and it's not practical so we, we can't really we can't understand anything that's conceptual you know, I can I can I can conceptualize the moons of Pluto but, you know okay it doesn't mean it doesn't even mean that there's moons of Pluto you know nobody's been there we don't know the awakening according again we have to understand what the Buddha taught we have to read the sutras and understand the purpose is understanding these four noble truths and that is awakening so again it's not conceptual any any human being can understand the process of understanding stress understanding the origination of stress understanding the cessation of stress understanding the eightfold path leading to the cessation of stress excuse me and so awakening is just a term that we bandy about that really has no meaning in general but within the dharma it's clearly defined understanding these four truths by taking true refuge we that leads to what am i trying to understand that a human being awakened what did he how did he awaken he left us a dharma to teach us how to do just what he did another human being mm. And how do we do that? Within the framework of a well-informed, well-focused on it, developing this understanding. And what does it lead to? The best description I can come up with of awakening. Now think about it, what, what is most important for a human being to do? What would be an awakened human being? Understanding what it means to be a human being. That's what it means. Awakening is full human maturity. It's nothing special. It doesn't take us out of this world In fact, it's the only thing I've ever come across that immerses me in this world, in this moment. Mm. Mindfully engaged without the need for me or you or anything else, including what's going on in the world, be any different because of understanding. And do you see how that leads me away from the nonsense of salvation? How can I accept what's occurring in the world right now? Because it's occurring, I don't have to approve of it because I've developed a level of maturity that tells me I can't, it's just what's occurring. And so from that understanding from full human maturity, from that understanding results in a common, peaceful mind. What's most important to you right now, Alex, and I get I don't mean, I mean that in a rhetorical sense, not in an accusatory sense. I think what's most important to you is a common, peaceful mind. You're going at it in many different, well, I wouldn't say many different ways. You're, you're, you're going after that idea and, in different ways one of them is therapy and you're finding benefit in that some of it might be something else that that you know that i'm just not aware of and you're finding benefit in that and you're developing the dharma and you're finding benefit in that it's all leading to this goal when the goal is unfocused such as something that a human being can't achieve like you know uh, uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna meet with avalokiteshvara in a future lifetime well that's just a distraction and you can't understand that, can you? Right? No, no human being can understand. It. You can believe it, but you can't understand it. Hmm. I think you can understand full human maturity as it relates to a common peaceful mind, because you've experienced it. You've experienced it just today in, in meditation. So does that explanation help?
3: You? It helps. I, I can still uh, um, Yeah. It helps. <laughs> but it,
0: it, it took me a while to to even come to that understanding because again I, my mind was conditioned by a lot of you know, yeah. modern Buddhism and uh, I thought uh, my original thought was awakening meant superpowers that I'd be able to bi locate and you know mm-hmm. fly around planets and be able to read people's minds et cetera, et cetera because that's how it was often presented that in fact, most modern schools of Buddhism say you recognize your awakening when you can have recall all your past lives and all your future lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, when I started reading the Buddha, what the Buddha actually taught, it was so refreshing because he wasn't telling me to grasp after and fabricate past lives and future lives. He said, focus on this life.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And he never said, there's no such thing as past lives. He just said, don't go there. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? Again, he was taking my focus, which was all out there, just like everyone else's, you know, I wanted to be some kind of super being because I felt so inadequate. That's why I needed it. But just wait a minute. What I really want is to understand what the hell is going on now. Mm. And what's going on now? Just this. So this is it, Alex. Mm.
3: Mm.
0: What are you going to make of it, though? You know, <laughs> is this enough?
3: Mm-hmm
0: that's, you know, that's, that's the counter to greed, aversion and deluded thinking in this moment, is this enough for me? Enough, what enough understanding enough distraction, enough vodka, you know, whatever it might be, is it enough? Well, what we're really asking ourselves is the quality of my mind enough. Mm -hmm. And if calm is enough, I can do that. And if calm is enough, then I'm I'm never lacking in anything. If calm is enough, nobody can ever take anything away from me, because I have enough. Full human maturity. Again, really incredible questions. And these, I used to say this a lot. I was teaching a Thursday night class. This was about three or four years into teaching, and I started because there was only a couple people that could they could only make it on Tuesday and Thursday nights. And so, for a couple of years, the Thursday night class was one or two people. And we had some of the best discussions ever. And I, I still go back and listen to some of them. Just because you know, it allows for de- developing, uh, getting into it uh, much deeper than we otherwise would. So again, great questions. Let's hear what Tom has to say. What profound question do you have.
1: Uh, my friend? No That's questions from me. Um, I've been enjoying listening to everyone's, what well, the, the questions before um, are uh, yeah, have been have been really interesting and and the responses um i I'll, I'll maybe just build on um, or reflect on alex's first point because it was exactly what I was thinking about and what I got a lot from um or what was what spoke to me most um today um it it was just this this um, just the idea of distraction and uh, I've had a Quite a busy week. I've just um, I've been in and out of London, and lots of things happening with work and some social things. And I felt quite distracted and not not at peace. I haven't had a particularly calm and peaceful mind this week. Um, and so, then coming back to what Alex was asking about, well, what do I keep in my life and what do I get rid of? And I, there are definitely things I need to get rid of, um, and 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 it's then it's where you apply the eightfold path to decide what is and what isn't and so one of the i won't go into, the, into all the things i need to get rid of but one of the things that i was like okay i do need to keep is um the reason i was actually late for class i was playing my dad my 79 year old dad at tennis uh and he gave me a really good game <laughs> and i thought i'd wow. finish and beat him a lot quicker but <laughs> i did all? yeah and he was I running think, around. We had a, we had, a, we had a real, I think that's a real that's a good, good luck. excuse for late. So, so I was running late because I, th- I thought we'd finish a lot sooner. And um, anyway, um obviously, that's not, not an, no, no, no excuse to arrive late for class. But if it, it was one of those things that, <laughs> of all of the distractions in my life um i mean you could call that i mean that's a if you if you frame that within the eightfold path that is bringing me benefit it's 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 not dharma practice obviously but it's something that doesn't you know it's good to have that kind of thing in your life and 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 then there are loads of other things that aren't so good you know to have in your life And, and it's up to me to show sort of wise discernment and to know the difference um based on based on my understanding of the dharma um so so yeah, so its just anyway, it's just like Alex's discussion and questions and, and and your answer just got me really reflecting on that and trying to just encouraging me really to, to, to take some time over the next few days to um, to to sort of yeah apply that um, the, the limiting nature of the Eightfold Path, but in a, in a really positive way, in a, a way which can enrich my life by focusing on the things that really matter and giving more time to them, starting, of course, with the Dharma itself. Um, so, yeah, so that's, anyway, That's that That was one of the things of um, this class. Um, and, uh, yeah, no profound questions this week, John, but uh, maybe maybe um, I'll, I'll pick up the Slack next week and ask a, a, a humdinger. I hope so. <laughs> but anyway, thank that you.
0: That was a profound example, though, of right dollar practice. I'm, anytime you're going to be playing tennis with your dad, uh, you have my uh, my uh, blessing <laughs> coming late. I think that's I mean, real. And that is that is dollar practice. It should be. I mean, it, it, it isn't rigid. And it does speak to impermanence. And so your your tennis went over a little bit longer. Okay, impermanence. I would not understand impermanence myself as a dollar teacher to get mad at that, would I? Because it would it would be not allowing your life to be as it is. There, the um, and then you touched on something. If if your life is so full that you can't that not use, using you as an example if I could, if your life is so full that in order to squeeze in a tennis match with your dad, you have to you have to miss a little bit of dhamma practice. Maybe you could have back ended it into something else. But that's just yeah. the dhammaist tells us that. I mean, I think that's what you're talking about. And so, Mm -hmm. um, the the true richness in life to me, I think about what, what people, uh, maybe it's not so much in Europe, but in this, you, you seem to travel more than we do. But in this country, you work your ass off for 50 weeks and you get two weeks to go do something you like to do. Well, what is it that most people do? They, they go someplace where they can sit around and not be busy. You know, they'll go out to dinner or maybe walk on a beach or do something else, but they won't be busy. Well, The dhamma gives us a life that we're not so busy all the time. We can create a life like we're on vacation because we're just not doing all the things to keep busy all the time. The reason why people go on vacation is to get away from all these things. Well, we can establish that day by day by looking at the things that we really don't need to do, that we're doing just for distraction, just for eye making. And initially, that's very hard to do because we're conditioned to keeping busy. We think that, that that's a meaningful life when I can look back and say, I did all these things, I did all these things. To me now, looking back on my life, I'm, I'm just glad I have a common peaceful mind now because <laughs> the rest of it really wasn't a lot of fun. I was busy. I did a lot of incredible things. And when I look back on my life, I think about it, it's remarkable the things that I did. But they were all, and, and this, I, I'm one of those people that I tend to meet I ran into a lot of famous people that I, some, one reason or another, was able to establish a relationship with. It just happened. It kind of like um, Forrest Gump, the movie, that kind of thing. It was just that way. And Part of it was I was never afraid to go up to a, to a so, so, so-called celebrity and say, Hey, you know, I like you. What are you about? And I got to know a lot of so-called famous people that way. And again, I look back at my life, and that was all just stuff that I did. And there's no real meaning to it except right here and right now. And right here, like I said a few times, if you looked at my life, most people would, it would be excruciating and boring because nothing's going on. But to me, I'm busy every moment of the day. But it's, you know, it's a different kind of busyness. I'm busy with just living my life rather than chasing after things I need to do. And I think you're all developing that. Every one of your questions in one way or another, even even Dominic about regret, leads to questioning what we're doing in our life. Within the framework of the Eightfold Path, that's Dhamma practice. I'm saying this to all of you. The questions you bring up and the the, the recollections of your your, uh, investigation of the Dhamma is Dhamma practice. It's just this way. We come in contact with ourselves and we ask these profound questions. Is this, is this regret, is this skillful or not? Is is therapy skillful or not? Is tennis with my dad skillful or not? Is living in the badlands of North Dakota skillful or not? And if it's unskillful, you let it go. And if it isn't, you live in, within this moment. Because the whole point is having a human life. Is your activities in this moment taking you away from your life or not? And that's really the, the, the question that, that the Buddha asked for here. And recognize, where are you creating your eye-making? Because it's in our activities that we do until we gain a, a measure of calm and peace. That's why it's so hard to, to stop doing certain things, because we identify with it. We create an identity by it. So the Dhamma teaches us to create an identity as a wise Dhamma practitioner, living life uh, framed by the eightfold Path with a measure of common peace. But being fully alive in this moment, it's remarkable. You know? Great class, anything, uh, Any anybody else have a comment or a question before we go? We'll finish with meta as we always do. Uh, I'm gonna look at the schedule, I might uh, substitute or uh, insert the Simpsapa Sikha next week because it, it really is appropriate to where we're at. Uh, but maybe we'll just finish. I think we only have one or two classes left in this structured study. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on from the Karaniya Meta-sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, emitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, they all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred in their way. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one. Having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.